This is Inside the Times. I'm Susan Lehman. Hillary Clinton and her campaign of 2008 started the birther controversy. I finished it. I finished it. You know what I mean. That's Donald Trump. He's claiming there that Hillary Clinton and her campaign started the insidious lie that Barack Obama was born outside the United States and that he, Donald Trump, put an end to the story. As it happens, that's not true. It is what the New York Times traditionally calls a misstatement. It was demonstrably, unequivocally false, and he had to have known it. And that's a lie. A lie. That's just what the New York Times called it. Times executive editor Dean Baquet is here to talk about his decision to call out presidential candidates' lies directly and in headlines on the front and the homepage of the New York Times. I thought this was an extraordinary moment. I think that he so clearly did lie. He kept talking about it for years. At one point, he even said he'd hired private detectives and they were finding amazing stuff. And it was so clearly a lie. Politicians exaggerate all the time. Politicians exaggerate their records. They exaggerate their achievements. They denigrate people, and it turns out that they said something else privately. This was extraordinary. There was no question of motive. It was very public. It was proven wrong years ago, and he continued it. And I think to have not called it a lie would have been sort of odd. It would have been false on our part. The word lie appeared in the headline for the piece. Has the Times ever called out anyone as a liar in the headline? I don't recall it. I would never bet that a newspaper has not done anything. It may have been that they did it in the past, but I don't recall it. Was there conversation leading up to the birther statements about mm-hmm. whether or not to call Trump's statements misstatements or false? And did he you provide know, an easy opportunity here? He did provide an easy opportunity. I think that newspapers struggle with using words like lie. We probably struggle with them too much, to be honest. I think we struggle with them because they imply motive. I think we struggle with them because... Usually politicians don't simply lie. They're more complicated. They exaggerate or they obfuscate. So it's not as easy to just throw words around like that. In this case, what happened is the reporter, Michael Barbaro, who's written about Trump and others, and his editor, Carolyn Ryan, had the urge to do it. And they wrote, I thought, a perfectly pitched story. Carolyn came in and said, we actually want to use lie in a headline online. And I said, absolutely, we should do it. And then when we got into the meeting where we were discussing the print front page, the only debate was some people thought we shouldn't lead the paper with the story because it was an analysis piece and with the word lie. And I often don't weigh in on the print front page because I think that there are many editors capable of it. But I thought this was a moment where the executive editor should weigh in. And I said, we should just lead the paper with it and use the word lie in the headline because I thought it was that extraordinary a moment. There are lots of people who said, gosh, you're using the word lie in a headline. That belongs on the editorial page, not on the front page yeah. of the paper. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I actually looked up lie in the dictionary before we did That's it. That's the kind of joint this is, isn't it? <laughs> and, and you know what? Lie and falsehood and false statement, which were things we were using before, are actually synonyms. Once that became clear to me, I thought... Of course, we had to use it. I don't think it was opinion. Is this analogous in any way to the decision, which I believe was yours, to call torture 
what we formerly called enhanced yeah. interrogation. Yeah. I think that was a much harder decision. I decided to start using the word torture. I think that was harder. But Why? everybody, well, everybody forgets. Everybody forgets. We actually didn't know what they did for years. All the information about how the U.S. treated prisoners came from anonymous sources, stuff that was semi-confirmed. We didn't have it cold. And I think once we got it cold, once we really knew, and the moment for me was when the government actually released the torture report, it was just so clear. And the descriptions were, for the first time, in a full, vivid, detailed, rich way. And you had to call it torture at that point. We probably waited too long. I'm not going to deny that. But once you had a document that just laid it out in vivid detail, to use the word enhanced interrogation felt like a false note. All right, back to Trump for a second. <laughs> you said that we are a little bit late, you thought, in using the word torture. Late here to call Trump's statements lies? I don't think so. First off, falsehood, which we were using, means the same thing. I don't think so. I think we needed a way, and Michael Barbaro and Carolyn Ryan gave it to us, gave it to me. I think we needed a way to point out that this one was exceptional that this was, it was one of the statements that drove his campaign, kept him regarded as a political figure even before he announced. And I think we needed a way to say this one, especially when he came back and said, okay, the president was born in Hawaii, this one was different. This is different. And we needed a way to distinguish it between other falsehoods that I actually think now we can probably start calling lies. <laughs> Wait and see. <laughs> As a candidate, Donald Trump has presented all kinds of challenges yeah. for journalists. It seems like it is presented in this question of what do you yeah. say about someone who says something that completely yeah. contradicts what is the known record. In my career as an editor and reporter, we've never had a candidate like this. And remember, I grew up as a journalist in Louisiana and covered Edwin Edwards, who was one of the most you know, notorious exaggerators in American political history. A long tradition starting with Huey Long. Yes, that's right. We've never had anybody like this. He, he lies about small stuff. He says one thing one day and says something different the next day. He insists that things are true that are sort of demonstrably wrong. It just makes it hard. You look, we have a language. Sometimes that language can be a little bit stodgy, and I think he challenges that language, and he challenges the way we do business, and he challenges our, our mores. And by the way, those mores and rules are important and good. Steve Kahl said in an interview, he's the, he's the head of the Columbia Journalism School, he said something really smart. The way I interpret what he said was, we have to be careful, right? If we throw all of our rules out the window for Donald Trump, because he's different, what happens four years from now when we have two merely normal candidates running for president? And what does happen? You've opened the floodgates. I, I, I honestly don't know. So Stephen Cole also said that he thought that it was possible that editors were looking at the tightening polls and thinking things like, uh-oh, we don't want to regret what we didn't and did say in this race. Is there any of that going on here? I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I, I always think like that. To be perfectly honest. Like I mean, you I wake up in the middle of the night and think, oh, yeah, <laughs> what am I going to regret? <laughs> I think, I mean, I live like that. You know, I, when we cover the conflict in Syria, I ask myself, you know, will history say 
The New York Times covered this aggressively. I put people's lives on the line to cover stories like that. But I still ask myself, will history say we got it right, got it wrong? Everybody got it wrong in the build-up to the war in Iraq, right? So I ask myself all the time, are we getting it right? That's what I feel like half of my job is to ask myself that question all the time. But, I, but I'm not asking it in particular because the polls are tightening. Do you think the paper, this one and others, covered Trump too much at the beginning because there was a lot of ratings and clicks involved in Trump stories? I think television probably did. We didn't. I mean, he, he was almost the front runner coming out of the gate. And he's a particularly newsworthy guy. I don't think we overcovered him. The one thing, the one thing that I think is a great myth, and it's a partisan myth, is that Donald Trump got where he is because the media wasn't tough enough on him. Or I, I just don't buy it. That carries with it the assumption that people are voting for him not knowing about the lawsuits, the multiple marriages, and all the other stuff. That is pushed by people who just cannot believe that 45% of Americans are voting for Donald Trump. I think that's like a misunderstanding of history and the head-in-your-sand thinking that keeps people from understanding this is an extraordinary election. It's not our fault. Speaking of lawsuits, there have been some veiled threats from the Trump camp against the New York Times. Yeah. Anything about that? Is there any particular response to care? Nope. Our stories have been tough and accurate, and he's as public a public figure as it gets. He has made himself a public figure. I don't think he's got a leg to stand on. And by the way... I should say, I don't want people to think, we, we have also done very aggressive coverage of Hillary Clinton. One of the most important stories the New York Times has done in the last year, as far as I'm concerned, is a two-part series on Hillary Clinton's decision-making in Libya, which was a story that illustrates her strengths and her weaknesses and was a really richly reported story. I was going to ask, actually, is there a story or coverage that you're most proud of during this long yeah. campaign? I think the two-part series about Hillary Clinton's decision-making in Libya, I'm extremely proud of. I think Sue Craig's reporting about Donald Trump's finances, including the best story that assessed his debts. And I think one thing that I would not have been able to say 10 years ago, the video from the back of a Trump rally I thought is one of the most extraordinary pieces of political journalism of the year. And and for somebody of my generation who didn't grow up where you could have video in your newspaper, it's remarkable. I think that's that was a killer piece of journalism. That was a really incendiary piece of journalism as well. Mm -hmm. It was difficult to watch. It really was disturbing. Was it, is that a tough decision to make? Nope. We're supposed to watch stuff and show it to people. No, nope. it was like, it's what happened. It was real. No. The only difficult decision to make is when we, we finished it, just as one of the, I guess, the Republican convention was starting, we struggled with the timing. But no, that was a piece of cake decision. That to me was journal. That's what journalism is supposed to be. Let's go forward just for a second. The debates are coming up. What do you think of the convention that TV reporters are the moderators? as opposed to, say, print journalists, Times reporters who might have more facts and be quicker to call out lies? Boy, that's a good question. I do think, for the most part, print journalists know more rich detail about the candidates. I think if you look at the Washington Post, the New York Times in particular, I think there's just been great coverage, and I think the people who work there know more than most television journalists. That said... There's some great television journalists. I mean, I think Megyn Kelly acquitted herself well. 
I think Lester Holt is a really good journalist, so it doesn't bother me. They'll get asked good questions, and to be frank, I, I would much rather cover it than have us asking the questions. Is it the moderator's job to call out lies, as we now call them? Yes. I don't. I mean, it's an interview. I've heard that some moderators said they didn't think that was their job. It's probably hard to do, and you have to be sure and sure-footed. And fast. And fast, but it's an interview. That's essentially what it is. So I, I think you should say, candidate so-and-so, that completely does not match stuff you've said in the past. And let me give you some examples. This has been a really extraordinary campaign, as you say, and the press has sort of been turned on its head in lots of different ways. Going forward, what have you learned from what's happened so far that you think could improve the paper's coverage of what's ahead? Oh, boy, that's a good question. I think it is really hard but important to keep writing about issues. When I say hard, it's because in a campaign like this, the day-to-day really takes up some of your best journalists. I mean, people criticize horse race journalism, but this is a horse race. Let's not kid ourselves. And it's interesting, and it makes it interesting, and it makes it compelling. But it also takes a lot of energy away from from writing about issues. I think I, I'm always wishing we could do more on issues, more stories that just grapple with the candidates' positions on issues. I think, though, probably the biggest thing that I've come away learning is I don't think anybody quite had their finger on the pulse of the country to quite understand the rise of Bernie Sanders and the rise of Donald Trump. I think it's wrong to say the press made it easy for Donald Trump to rise. I don't think that's the case at all. But I do think we didn't quite understand how much anxiety and anger there was in the country. In our defense, we had a moment when, in the case of Trump, there was an extraordinary candidate who surfaced it in ways we hadn't seen before. But I think that if I had to do it over again, I mean, if you could push me back two years ago, I would have done a 10-part series on anxiety in America. We're doing it now, but I would have done it a long time ago. Thank you, Dean Baquet. Thank you for calling out lies and for your time. Thank you. This is Inside the Times. I'm Susan Lehman. You can subscribe to our podcast, and please do, at iTunes. And you can let us know if there's something you'd like to know more about by emailing us at timesinsider at nytimes.com. Thank you to Pedro Rosado, our producer, and thank you for listening. <laughs>